0: Welcome to the Hot Young Designers Club podcast.
1: I'm Rebecca Plum, your big sister.
0: And I'm Sean Serha, your GBF.
1: We're not that hot or that young.
0: But we believe it's a state of mind that helps us build adaptable and profitable businesses.
1: We rely on the support of our design besties to get through each day.
0: So let's explore the emotional, practical, and humorous sides of being interior designers.
1: Welcome to the club. Hey, Sean.
0: What's up, Rebecca?
1: We have a fun guest today.
0: Yes, we're welcoming Fred Nikolaus. Fred is the executive editor for Business of Home. Hey, Fred. Hey, guys. How's it going?
1: Super good. We feel, I feel kind of legit. We have like...
2: <laughs> a true journalist? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You also described me as fun. It's a dangerous thing to describe your guest as fun before they start talking. <laughs> I know. You, you never know if they're going to live up to that. Yeah, it's like, that's like calling try. yourself cool. You have to let other people do it. So. <laughs> <laughs> or hot and young. As, well, yeah. yeah well, we're
1: all about irony around here. So.
2: <laughs>
1: okay. Can you tell us a little bit about like what you do? We, we know you're with Business of Home, but kind of what your background is and
2: Sure, yeah. So I, as you said, I'm the executive editor of Business of Home. My background is also in my in my 20s when I was actually young. I'm not sure if I was hot. Other people would have to, to judge that. But <laughs> in my 20s, I was a musician, and that was what I did with kind of my early quote-unquote career. And then I got old, and I was like, okay, I got to do something that actually makes money. And so I started, I was always kind of a freelance writer here and there. And I wrote for like Elle Decor and House Beautiful. I knew about the design world a little bit. And then this job opened up at BOH about four or five years ago, and I just, I was really excited about it because, you know, I, I don't know if your listeners know business of home, but it's, it covers the design world, but we do it in a sort of serious journalistic way. And it really appealed to me to be able to write about this world I know and love, but to do, you know, kind of real news stories as opposed to just describing beautiful rooms, which I like too, but it's, you know, you, you one can get tired of it.
0: Yeah. I think I do know that a lot of our listeners do listen and, and and read Business of Home, but also that like for me, coming from like my banking business background, I like some of the more serious business discussion that can happen. And then also the like, here's the fun parts of design. Like we just keep up to date on what's happening. So it is kind of that mix of the, the perfect blend of, of the stories that happen there.
2: Well, oh, thank you. We aim for the perfect blend. But yeah, I mean, it's funny because like, design is such a cool and interesting business, but almost no one treats it that way unless, you know, people outside of it don't think of it that way. You know what I mean? And so it's so cool to like get into the weeds and really look at how it works and understand why things are the way they are. And, you know, it's, yeah, that's, it's a fascinating business.
1: Right. Cause I think like we, I think we're going to talk about this a little bit too, but a lot of the top, dogs in the industry <laughs> aren't really that cool like i feel like they seem very disconnected to us you know soldiers on the ground trying to make things pretty there's an interesting like we always talk about there are so many women as interior designers and then so many men kind of running the like furniture game and stuff so it just seems there's kind of an interesting disconnect too so it makes i think it's been really helpful as i've learned more about the industry to really understand it. Like, it's not just pretty, pretty, put cute curtains up. Like, there's a lot going into it.
2: Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. I'm curious about who these top dogs are. I got to have to tell me (laughs) after the pod, after the mics are off. I don't know. But just like
1: owners of furniture companies was mostly what I'm thinking. Okay,
2: gotcha. Yeah.
1: Or rug manufacturers. It's just a very... (laughs)
2: <laughs> Not like a, a, I, I know you're thinking of one a couple people in particular there's, but, we'll but there's a very later, like
0: yeah. male centric market of like who owns the companies who are these wholesalers owned by it's a definitely definitely like a very for me too it's like a very cis hetero environment like yes, yeah.
1: you know, and, and, yeah.
0: and it's specifically like a lot of like still a lot of boomers running everything which is different for us because when we're on the ground at like local designer showrooms it feels like small boutique feels like it's current it feels like they they're like more aware that they're speaking directly to a designer and although they would probably love to do contract sales and get big stuff they're also very aware of what like a smaller designer is trying to do to build their business so it's an interesting dynamic the more that we've learned about it by going to markets and things like that to see it play out in real time where they're like you can see vendors at market who are like oh we only want we only want to talk to Williams-Sonoma Group. Like, we really just want to sell to yeah. them. We don't really want... We're, yeah, sure, we have a small program for designers, but we're really set up to only work with these big retailers or big boutiques.
2: Yeah, well, it's, it's funny you should say that, because I actually think in some ways, like the story... And we're talking about High Point here. Like, the yeah. story of High Point over the past decade has been a move away from that, what you're talking about. This thing of, like, only working with big retail buyers and moving towards designers, because if, like 10 years ago, you'd go to high Point, And this is actually before I even started covering it, but just talking to people, you hear these stories about, you know, showrooms would have these signs that say like, no designers, like you're not allowed. Oh, God. <laughs> and what's happened is just that like, as the retail business is kind of like small little local chains, mom and pop shops have gotten, gone out of business or gotten less powerful and designers have gotten more powerful. A lot of businesses are trying, like a lot of wholesalers are trying to work with designers. It's just that, as you guys say, like culturally, they haven't really done it. They don't always know how to do it. There's not, there's like, there's often a disconnect there. Mm -hmm. We feel it. And some (laughs) of them, and some of them, yeah. (laughs) And some of them as you're right, still just don't think about designers. Don't want to think about it. And it's still, it's still kind of a non-starter for them.
1: Yeah. There's not the respect. So in your opinion, like how do you, how and why do you think designers should stay informed in these industry goings on?
2: Well, reading Business of Home is, is obviously the number one. And listening to the Business of Home podcast featuring Dennis Scully is also a good a good way to do it. I mean, you know, that's it's my job to stay on top of these things. So I kind of feel in the thick of it and different people are gonna get different things out of it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like in some cases, staying on top of the news is really useful in a very like acute way. Like I'm sure you got I know Sean, you were posting about Interior Define when they were having all those troubles last my year. Favorite. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, so not to toot our own horn, but beep, beep, we broke that news. And for a lot of people who like were about to place an order with Interior Define, it's like helpful to know that the mm-hmm. company is going through a really chaotic period. So sometimes staying informed about stuff is like actually useful, like in the minute. But other times it just sort of helps you navigate the industry, sort of understand what's going on. Like, you guys are well connected because you have a podcast, but a lot of designers don't, you know, network as much don't socialize as much and it's yeah. it can be kind of a lonely industry and so i think it's helpful just to stay in touch with what's going on in kind of an ambient way to know to know where things are headed agreed
1: yeah i feel like your guys' new thursday show little plug for that is mm-hmm. a really perfect mix of news but you guys are seem more playful during those episodes <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> more relaxed but there's more banter so but I do like the frame. When like a couple weeks ago, you were talking about Bed Bath and Beyond and the changes in that company, and the question is always like, how does that affect luxury design? And sometimes you're like, I don't think it affects it at all. And sometimes <laughs> there's like a lens to think about. So I think that specifically is super helpful.
2: Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because like I don't know, like IKEA, right? Yeah, yeah. Like you guys, you guys obviously know this way better than I do, but. Sometimes there is this thing in the industry where some bad piece of news will happen, or the economy seems to be cooling off, and you talk to really high-end designers, and they're like, Oh, it doesn't matter. My clients are rich. Who cares?" Like, there's like that mentality, you mm-hmm. know. But I think, I think that that stuff does matter, and it's also important to remember that like not every designer is exclusively working with three billionaires. It's like it's a <laughs> it's a big bad industry, and you know. So I don't know. I, I think I think it's important to to stay in touch with the, with the goings on, but that obviously is what pays my salary. So I'm going to say that. (laughs) Yeah. I think it makes a difference
0: too, when we're like, to like add credibility with our clients. Like I wouldn't want to work with a financial advisor who was like, oh yeah, I never read the Wall Street Journal or I never look at, (laughs) I don't, I don't look at (laughs) Bloomberg news or something. Like if they just said, I only go off of my gut, I never look around at what's happening or read the market ticker. I'd be like, oh, this is probably not the right person. Like, they're they're not really invested in it. And they're not going to be able to warn me of anything because they won't know it's coming. So I think in the same way, clients want to know like, what's the worst that that I should expect? What's happened? Is lumber normal again? What what's going on with lead times on appliances? Like, keeping our pull, keeping the pulse, finger on the pulse for that makes a difference. Just to make sure our cr- clients understand where we're coming from and that we do really care about our industry. It isn't just the fluffing pillows. It's about running an effective business. I think it lends them the confidence that they need in us. If they haven't been following along and don't hear us talking about it in other places, it's good that they hear that we're staying up to date too.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I I hope so. And I think like clients. You know, it, uh, the design industry and the furniture industry, a lot of people don't really think about it until they have to think about it. Mm-hmm. You know, so understanding that there is this thing called the supply chain that was crazy for three years. if Clients sometimes stumble across a business phone article and they're like, oh, so that's what my designer's talking about. So I think, you know, it's the more information that the more people know, I tend to think is is ultimately helpful.
1: So we talk a lot about, I guess, innovation and technology and... We always gravitate towards companies that embrace that and make things easy for us. We don't have to fax in orders, and (laughs) which, like, still, I had somebody request a fax within this last year, and it's like, what is that? But (laughs) so, like, back to kind of, I guess, these like boomer run companies historically, why do you think the design industry is so slow to innovate?
2: Yeah, it's it's such an interesting question, and I, I grapple with that one all the time, and I have all kinds of different theories about it. I think one thing is just that, like, you know, we're going to get a little nerdy and technical here, so forgive me. But, like, a lot of businesses where you're selling, like, a consumer good, like fashion, are really high throughput, right? Like, Gap mm-hmm. sells, like, 100 shirts a second or whatever it is. And each purchase is kind of low volume. Like if Gap messes up one shirt, it's not the end of the world for them, right? You know, yeah. like or like if one little thing they do goes wrong. But like, even a big retail company doesn't sell a hundred sofas a second. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're they're selling like a couple sofas a day. Or I mean, that, a big retail company is selling more than that. But like, you know, a high end furniture showroom is not selling hundreds and hundreds of pieces a day. And so the throughput is very slow. And so I think that like what that creates is a culture where like every little thing that you do matters a lot and is really impactful and there's not a lot of it. So it makes you kind of risk averse, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So like if I sell like three sofas and that's, you know, $40,000, if one of those goes wrong, because I tried some newfangled technique or whatever, that's like a third of my (laughs) revenue for the year or whatever it is. So I think that like, because of the way the industry is set up, people just are very hesitant to like take risks and push things forward and try something new. Because if you try something new and mess it up, it may take a long time to find out. And by that point, you've already sunk a ton of money into something that didn't work and you're behind the the competition. So there's a lot of, it's also so relationship focused. And so like, it's, there's just a million little reasons why people don't, you know, push things forward a little bit, you know, I am, of course, tempted to be like, oh, it's the boomers. It's all their fault. But I do think there's something just inherent about the industry that makes it a little bit like kind of slower to to race ahead from a technological perspective. Yeah, I think
1: sometimes it's like the legacy of like a lot of them are family run businesses. So I think in general, those types of businesses tend to be this is the way it's always been. Like, don't don't mess with the
0: formula. Like, yeah. Yeah.
1: So like not a lot of innovators coming into the scene but the ones that have done it like forehands, like just are doing it
2: yeah (laughs) they like get it i know it's funny though because like i think i told this sean to you via dm but like one of the crazy things like have you guys ever looked there's like a chart that shows how wealth is distributed among generations it's crazy because like millennials are such a big part of the population but in terms of the amount of like u.s wealth they control it's like six percent it's a tiny amount Mm -hmm. so even though like technically speaking millennials is this huge market if you want to just like reach the rich people who control the money like you're still talking to boomers and gen x which is so i I feel like it's it's weird because as like i'm like a very old millennial but like (laughs) you you feel like there's tons of us like why aren't you marketing to us why aren't you working in our our way but you realize that like the people who are really paying for super high-end interior design are older you know
1: yeah, but I'm Gen X and I still want to use a computer. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm more like millennial minded. I was like early adopter Gen X probably, but. Yeah. Okay, well.
2: So you guys think Forehands is like one of the companies that's, because that's what I say what I here too, that they sort of figured out their system to work really well with designers.
1: It's so simple and everything's clear. It's easy to order. It's
0: easy to track.
1: There's issues, obviously, with any company, but they handle it. Like, the damage rate is a little high, but they make good on it. Like, I don't have to worry about getting screwed holding onto a dining table like I have from other companies (laughs) that I won't name, but really want to. So, and their photography is great. Like, I mean, they have kind of like a retail point of view that is helpful.
2: Yeah, I think like, it's funny, you know, the, the high point thing where like a lot of those wholesalers are set up to deal with like William Snowmar or, you know, a big chain. I think the reason why is because it's like, it's the same thing. It's like, if you can sell like a few containers to one person, that's a lot more efficient than selling like two sofas to a hundred designers. Right. Mm -hmm. But like what Forehand's figured out is that if you set up your tech really well, then you don't have to have like a hundred salespeople talking to each designer. And so I feel like a lot of brands are like trying to move in that direction, trying to get their tech set up in a way that works so that they don't, you know, they can work way more efficiently. In other words,
1: hopefully.
0: <laughs> we are, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> when we find the ones that do, I feel like when we talk to designers, they're like, oh, I was so impressed with this because of that. And so they know that they're going to spend less time in procurement, they know they're going to spend less time having to negotiate, putting in an order with a rep who wants you to email a an Excel sheet that you had to fill out. And so all those like little barriers just make it a turnoff to most designers because it's like, oh, they're just, this vendor wants to play hard to get basically. <laughs> and they don't want to <laughs> yeah. do that. So they're, we're just yeah. like, okay, unless it's a piece that's really fantastic, it's time to move on, you know, and then find someone who makes it easier to work with
1: yeah or like if things are back ordered or still on a boat somewhere, like we can like you can see it like Forehands shows you that information, so like I can make an educated purchasing or at least a presentation, and they usually hit it, so it's it's just consistent,
2: yeah, no for sure, and it's it's yeah, <laughs> the idea of the vendor playing hard to get is so funny, like what other industry it's like. Let me beg you to buy stuff from you. It's it such feels a funny like consideration. Yeah. No, it, I know. I know. It feels like that,
0: like a well, we're we're making so much great stuff. We're doing such great things. And and then it's, you know, a 40-step process to get an account set up or to put in your first order, or then it's a crazy minimum buy-in that you're like, oh, well, yeah. okay. Like, I guess it's just I'll go back to the dealer that you work with. And 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 that just feels like counterintuitive
2: to like. Shut up and take my money. Like I just Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why like yeah, why do you guys think because I have my own theories, but why do you think like minimums are so persistent? Like it, it just seems like with the right tech you can make the sales process efficient. Like, is it just that they don't want to deal with it or like what's your perception around why minimums mm. are still such a thing?
1: I always think it has to do with freight, but and I just think it just hasn't I think the Perception hasn't adjusted internally at the companies because we're i mean we pay so much in freight, like we're just we've just absorbed it and our clients and have obviously, but I don't know, like they can't load a truck for under a thousand dollar like the truck's getting loaded. What do yeah. they care where it's going? I don't know,
2: yeah, this, this sounds like an article to me i've just I, i'm 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 just really interested in it because it sort of seems like. It's a holdover from the day when they're just used to doing business with the retailers and that's the way it worked. Yeah, they just wanted bigger orders. Or, I mean, maybe, in my hope of hopes,
0: maybe somewhere along the line they looked at an efficiency ratio and a productivity ratio within the company. And they're like, okay, unless we sell X amount per consumer, we end up just losing a lot on labor costs and internal admin costs or infrastructure costs. And then... The profit ratio is too small that it just doesn't make sense to sell small volume. And maybe that was the case or still is for some of them where they just, hey, unless we move this much per client, it just isn't really the profit margin we want. I would, in my hope of hopes, that's what they've done. But I really wonder if they've challenged that. <laughs> but then that there's thought tiered process.
1: pricing. Like other companies have tiered pricing then. Like, okay, fine. I'm a small buyer. Like, I'll pay more until I get my volume up. Like, again, four hands, nailed it. It's clear. You know, it's like gamified almost. Like, you know, when you're moving up the <laughs> yeah, little Once ones, I yeah. hit the
2: next tier, then I level up again. Yeah. yeah.
1: And it incentivizes you to keep buying from them.
2: Yeah. Yeah, the minimum thing is weird. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, Sean, they probably have done some version of what you just said. It's probably not quite... I'm not sure they did it with like equations. They probably just kind of vibed it out a little bit. Uh-huh. But like, I, I, I think they. It's also they have the relationship with the dealer, which is complicated. The dealer might mm-hmm. be like, "Hey, why are you selling to the person who comes into my store?" and blah blah blah. So that can get a little tricky too. But I think I think things are moving away from that and towards the the kind of forehand y approach.
0: Yeah, or I've seen minimums getting lower where they're like, it's a thousand dollars. We just wanna know you're serious. If we're gonna go through the effort of assigning you a rep who's gonna talk with you, whatever. Yeah. You gotta buy at least a dining table or a sofa. Like we don't (laughs) just want you buying three side tables and and just go buy those on Burke decor or something. Like they just don't they don't want that, which I could kind of get like uh we just need to know that if we're gonna invest resources in you, you're at least gonna buy something cuz i'm sure they do get a lot of ve- designers who set up accounts but then don't buy or they don't buy for a very long time i feel like that's a lot of designers as they get interested and then they wait a- it takes a long ramp to get to that first order it's probably it's probably the same a lot with like fabric houses that they're shipping and sending us tons of memos tons of stuff way more money invested on that than our first orders of of bolts of fabric
2: yeah. And they might also be kind of wary of like homeowners who've just figured out like how to get a trade, you know, set up a trade account, that whole thing, mm-hmm. you know, that, the, yeah, there's, there's reasons for it too. <laughs> I do love the thing of, look, just, just take us out to dinner first. We'll set up yeah. a trade account, you know, <laughs> I
1: know. Buy,
2: buy a girl a drink. Okay.
0: Yeah. <laughs> just don't leave us hanging. Like, we just got to know you're a little yeah. bit serious and then, then we're willing yeah. to invest a little bit of time and do the second date. Like.
2: Yeah, no, for sure. I feel like one thing that I feel like designers already are doing but should be doing is just figuring out a way to do custom that works for them because just more and more stuff's going to be online. It's going to be so much easier. Mm -hmm. That's not, that trend is not going backwards at all. So like if you can find a way to get people stuff that only you can control and control the pricing and the message and make it exactly perfect for them in a way that's not onerous or complicated or a billion dollars. I think that's like a huge advantage. There's a designer I talked to in Texas who actually opened up her own upholstery workshop just because she was like, I need a lot of this stuff. I can control the margin. I can control the timeline. Obviously, you have to buy it and staff it, but I thought it was such a smart move. Like, if you can swing that, it's it's a very cool thing to have.
0: I think it's going to keep growing. I know there's a lot of designers who are just making these libraries of every custom piece they've ever built or designed, and they're like, I just got to figure out the platform process of it to get it out there. And Rebecca's talked with, she and I have talked about that. The whole e-commerce of it all can be a really high barrier to entry for a lot of designers to compete with. Yeah, for sure.
1: Because people want to see pricing and configurations and you have to be able to put that online. But yeah, that's like a whole thing, which is now we're the boomers who don't
2: want to <laughs> let's things. let's just stick to what works guys it's, let's get back to our faxes can, just, yeah. We'll yeah yeah we order. don't need a complicated yeah. 3d model software yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. good
0: stuff. yeah so if a software company were listening that was like we already do this but we need to make it easier for you know a designer to configure like that's the stuff that i think we're missing is the approachable side of a software that could be adaptable to a designer to create all of their own stuff that doesn't require, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, it would be really empowering for I think a lot of designers, you know, instead of them having to pursue collections through large vendors, they could think about this is my own stuff where it's not controlled by someone else. And the the idea of a workroom, we've talked about that, like, should we (laughs) have if i could afford to buy a drapery or a window treatment workroom because they're all a lot of them are older they've had these businesses a long time they don't really apprentice a lot of people underneath them and i think there's uh, there's a huge gap in like rebecca probably doesn't like <laughs> i've talked about this a few times so she might be getting annoyed but <laughs> the idea of there are a lot of businesses that are owned by retiring generations. I am I know we're not going to just rag on boomers the whole time, but there are a ton of boomers who have built <laughs> yeah. a lot of businesses that have a ton of wealth, but there's not a lot of platforms or ways for them to get in front of people who would want to buy and own their businesses. And, and unfortunately, that probably means that a lot of them at some point will just close up shop or trickle it off until they're gone, you know, until they pass. But no one that wealth will just disappear that business that already exists and knowledge. with the, with all the clients and all of that like there's no real easy way for those business owners to find someone who's like hey i own you know an upholstery and a window treatment workroom i'm i'm 58 i don't want to own this that much longer because i want to retire but i i don't know how to find the people who are interested in owning it buying it you know I'll train them for 5 years and stay on board as like a president kind of and then they can keep it like there's no platform for those out there you just start what so do you like do? So like a Ask succession around?
1: internship program kind of
0: Yeah you just yeah. like what like <laughs> post it on a on a next door page on or on Facebook or something like how do those yeah. business owners find someone who wants to help them exit cash out that retirement strategy and know that it helps another new business owner
2: I mean Yeah, that is a really big perennial problem with something like upholstery, right? Because, like, you know, the average twenty-one-year-old doesn't see upholstery making as like a you know a a growth industry or a future, even though it certainly could could be. It's just it's like it's hard for them to find people. We, we, I don't know if you guys know this guy, Grant trick, but he has like a great custom upholstery business and he, he had, it was based in Alabama and he was like the only guy doing this kind of work in Alabama. And it was kind of like this great plucky story of like, you know, he would find, you know, you know, outsiders and weirdos to come work in his workshop and train them up. And eventually he just had to give up and move to North Carolina because he just couldn't find enough people to make what he wanted. And, and so I think that's why the, you know, the industry concentrates around there because it's like, you need a, a, a critical mass of people who see this as a career and want to do it as a job. And I mean, there's that in LA too, of course, but it is it is hard for small workshops that aren't in a location with a ton of other like workshops to find people like that. Right. I don't know. It, it It is kind of sad. It's like that,
0: but you, ba- you basically have to be in a company town type again, like yeah. in order for people yeah. to see the value in it. I have an uncle who works for a flooring. I think it's Armstrong flooring and he. Oh, yeah. It's like the whole town is employed by armstrong like for for like a hundred years now, so it's just like everybody works there, they all know it creates their livelihoods, they care about it, fathers and sons work there at the same time, you know, like everybody does it, and it but it it shows that that idea of, okay, this is good, honest work that people need that that we want, but not everybody wants to do the hard the hard work that comes along with it because it's not it is labor intensive. You are using your body up for this type of stuff. And we've kind of romanticized this office job mentality for a lot of people for a long time.
2: Yeah. And it's funny because what Grant would told me when I was, I did a piece about this, or maybe we did a podcast interview with him about it. And he told me like, you'd get people who come in and they were sort of interested in upholstery and kind of like a hobby kind of way. And they'd think that they'd want to do it. But when they'd like really see what the work actually was, They'd be like, well, actually, never mind. Like, I'm going to try and <laughs> get in. You know, I'm going to be like a social media director for for Panera yeah. Bread instead of instead of upholstery. So I, you know, it 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 can be a difficult sell to the next generation. It's funny though. I, as we were talking, I was just remembering we were talking earlier about how like. Some sort of site or platform that tries to allow designers to make their own custom collections. There actually was a business that did something like that called God. No, I just remember Build Lane. Mm-hmm. Did yeah. you guys? It's, I'm not. I actually haven't looked at them recently. I we like. I did a bunch of articles about them when they first launched because it's an interesting idea. But like, it, if they're still going, if someone if they have a competitor, that's like an interesting concept for a business. I just don't. Maybe it's hard to find the entrepreneurs who actually like want to make it happen.
1: They're still going. I haven't had anything quoted for a while. Oh. But yeah, I mean, I think as they were able to get more and more like localized manufacturers, that was going to help the pricing and ease yeah. of use. So yeah, we should look back.
2: Tell them a fax.
1: Because so
2: they're, they're <laughs> around there. A lot of their
0: workshops are here in, in LA. And so I know that they're like, for me, that's great. But I know that I'm sure they're trying to in in that tech platform slash startup y phase where it's like we they depend on that margin that they can mark up in between on pricing, yeah, and yeah. like for some for for me, like like you you said like l a has sort of this hub of still custom upholstery and manufacturing, which a lot of you know is beneficial for me because I can walk into an upholsterer give them my sketch and they can get started. And I can go back in a couple weeks and I can sit, test it and double check it. And a lot of designers don't have that, uh, that access. So, you know, But
1: Build Lane did add a technical aspect that all those little mom and pop upholsters don't have, which is placing my order online, getting feedback, getting sketches online, getting approvals documented,
0: you know, because I've walked in on stuff where you're like, expected
1: land dates.
0: Yeah, oh wait, you laid the pattern the wrong direction. They're like, "Oh." And they're like, "I wrote it on the <laughs> I wrote it on the the purchase order." You know, and they're like, "Oh, I totally missed that." And you're like, "Dang." And then there is sort of the you want the confidence which is why a lot of designers end up back at large wholesalers is, "Oh, this company's not yeah. going to leave me hanging because they have the margin to absorb their mistake." And my small local upholstery guy, he that's money coming out of his pocket cuz he still has to pay for all the labor to be done again. And we do it when he he messes up or if we're buying expensive fabrics, you know, he asks me, he's like, how much is this fabric per yard? Because he's worried about (laughs) who's going to fuck it up. Like, who in my shop is going to work on this because there isn't a do over if we do this, you know, so he knows to ask that, but not everybody would. Yeah. so. So I think that working with a company where you feel like they can stand behind it and they'll still warranty it in some way and they know to ask the questions and document them that's helpful when
2: it's scary for a designer to do it or if they're worried they haven't done it before yeah for sure it's a lot easier to like yell at wayfair and have them send you like three more sofas than it is to (laughs) to, you know yell at your guy yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. who
1: might not answer the phone because he's busy actually making the sofas he's working
2: in the shop all day
0: I mean, there's a lot of big changes coming. I think something that we wanted to make sure that we ask you about is you meant we mentioned it sort of at the top of changes and shakeups with vendors and what's happening with them. Mm-hmm. And we don't like it's not about naming names, but it, I think like for me, I noticed how like I guess it was early last year, Hooker Furniture brought brought in Sunset West under their umbrella, and recently Global Views and Surya. Are like joining forces, but then there's also companies that we're seeing that are being lost, going out of business, and so it would be interesting to hear your thoughts on what is with the shakeup in all of that, or what are you observing or hearing about that's related to those changes.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, there a lot of those are like you know, it's they're different scales. Like I just wrote like a big piece about this company Jean de Marie that was like a really high end LA showroom that went out of business, mm-hmm. but that's like a very specific you know thing and you know what's going on with like surya and global views is a very different like scale and you know they're playing kind of a different kind of game but i mean i think like big picture like as everyone on listening to this will know you know the past three years have been like this incredible boom time for the business you know because of the pandemic you know every company that makes home stuff was just you know inundated with orders the revenue shot up like crazy you know but that is really cooled off especially for the retailers who are selling kind of to a slightly lower. you know, demographic. And so I think like what we're seeing now is that like the tide is kind of washing out a little bit and uh, the people who, you know, didn't have their businesses in order or were making, maybe making a lot of revenue during COVID, but their margin was terrible just because it was costing them a lot to make it. So I think we're kind of like, we're like firmly in this, you know, post boom period where people who didn't quite have their money, right. Are getting washed out of business a little bit. And, you know, it's a difficult, it's a difficult time. I think the people that like emerge from like these couple of years will be really, really strong though, because there's a lot of, you know, there, w- whenever other business, like weaker businesses go out of business, the stronger businesses that buy them up or take over that become stronger. So it's like a consolidation period. I think
1: mm.
2: does that all check out with what you guys feel as well. Like what's your perspective on it?
1: Yeah. I read your Jean de Mary article last night and
2: mm. that was a kind of a special Situation. Yeah, was, I mean, yeah. That,
1: it was like more of a specifics about their story, but I did think it was helpful to hear how you explained kind of how you like the washing out, like how yeah. you kind of are working with money that's not really supposed to be spent, <laughs> and then yeah. when the orders disappear, all the payments come due, and vendors need to get paid, and it's a whole no house more, of like, cards. Play money.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the de Mary thing There's was, stuff. yeah, it's, it's, it's obviously very specific to them. I don't think most multi-lines are, are doing that or most businesses are doing that, but like, yeah, it's like when you're getting tons of new business, it just papers over a lot of the cracks. Right. And I also think COVID itself became kind of a shield for people. Like, you know, there was so much chaos, so much confusion, it was not implausible to say hey sorry your order is a year and a half late because of supply chain like that's was very legitimate for a long time right and so i think that like there are lots of people who use it as an excuse and over time that excuse kind of goes away all the new money coming and goes away and then you just kind of hit a wall at that point and you know just got to hope that not too many people get hurt when that happens but yeah
0: yeah it it becomes really clear I mean, having in my, pa- in my past life in finance, in wealth management, we would see that happen with businesses where they were like, oh, they were just riding high on the good times. And the joke was always inside the bank, even that people can sell like... A ra- Before the bubble, it was like, oh, anybody can sell a home equity line. And then afterwards, when everything burst, they were like, only the people who are actually good at what they do are going to be able to do this now. Because... Yeah. Not everyone had equity and not everyone was smart enough to be able to help clients with with financial decisions, but it was like when everyone was flush, you could get whatever you want, anyone was buying whatever they wanted and then as things tightened up, it it's just this endless cycle of expanding contract. I mean, I'm not surprised that bigger bigger companies or even mid-sized companies are looking to join forces or or buy each other out because I know that they're now able to negotiate even better shipping pricing, I'm sure, or freight pricing, it may make them even more nimble to be able to represent, particularly like Hooker Furniture and Sunset West, Hooker Furniture not really having any presence in outdoor, it makes sense to just, instead of start it from scratch and do all the R&D and create a whole new line of furniture yourself, here's a company that's already like positioned to do that, but needs more exposure and you have more manufacturing capability than they do, or you have more access to it, like that made sense to me of like, oh yeah, they're just gonna, it's gonna build their whole audience now. They they can see that many more people and they can save costs, you know, if you're Sunset West, save costs on not having to have these expensive showrooms all to yourself. And now you've got this sort of bigger brother protection of this really huge yeah. company around you. So that, that's gonna open up Sunset West, hopefully to a lot more. But maybe, you know, for... Hooker furniture, they're hoping, great. Now we don't have to worry about the cost of starting up a whole new outdoor furniture line. We've already got it.
2: Yeah, no, completely. I mean, that's, you know, that's the mergers and acquisitions game, right? It's like, you know, buying your way into a new market or buying your way into a new category. The only like weird, complicated, I mean, I think, I think in another time, like you'd see, like there would be so many more deals just like that. The weird thing is because of the banking crisis, like the Silicon Valley Bank thing, it's just Mm -hmm. making, banks a little bit more cautious about lending money because there's just a lot of nervousness in the air. And so I had like a meeting actually with some m a guys at High. this is very nerdy, by the way, we can talk about <laughs> if you guys want <laughs> at some point, but I had a meeting with some mergers and acquisitions guys at, at, at spring market. And they were talking about how like, there's so many people who want to make deals right now, but you, in order to make it happen, you usually have to get a bank to loan you the money to facilitate the actual transaction. And banks are a little sort of tight fisted right now. So mm-hmm. I don't know. We'll, We'll see what happens, but it's it's definitely a, an interesting time to be sure. My job is busy.
1: I'm curious what your thoughts are on so we know we know everything is going online and online s- furniture sales and all that is not going away. But there is always the I think a lot of designers biggest fantasy is to have the little boutique with their little furniture line and their candles and pillows and all that and like In Sacramento, where I live, we have no little small retail anymore. Hmm. Very, very little. And everybody wants it, but it doesn't work.
2: (laughs) Why does it not why does it specifically not work in Sacramento?
1: I just think people don't want to spend the price point that small retail costs. Um,
2: Like the consumer base isn't isn't there mm -hmm. for it.
1: Yeah. And then they just get lazy and order it online, or they maybe they would shop the store and then go find it cheaper somewhere else.
0: Yeah, like they look up the candle company and they're like, "Oh, it's on Amazon for ten bucks less. I'll just buy it on Amazon." Yeah, you know, yeah, like they don't—they're yeah, yeah. not necessarily really wanting to support a small business necessarily. They but they like the idea of going into the boutiques and the shops because there's unique things that they're not seeing in their daily life.
1: But I was even talking to a. F- like my hairdresser, actually, last week, who just got back from New York, and she said it's so different post COVID. Like the, a lot of those small boutiques aren't there there either. And I'm like, if it's not making it in New York, like we know yeah. it's not getting anywhere. So,
2: yeah, I mean, it's it's a complicated time for that stuff, right? Because like, it re- you know, physical retail is hard, and because everybody gets shop, like you just said, you know, that makes it even harder. In New York it's kind of weird because the rent is it's just like a billion dollars an inch so it's mm-hmm. like that just makes it really difficult to to make any retail business work. I will say though that like designers still do open up shops like that. We we write about them all the time. I think I think sometimes it's a combination of like you can be- get better pricing from your vendors if you have like a brick and mortar, you know what I mean? So sometimes yeah, yeah. it almost like it's like for the design business really it's just that it's you know it's kind of sort of a retail business but it's largely just like Part of the design business, so I, I, I also think that post COVID, like landlord, commercial landlords are a little more willing to play ball. Like, there's a lot of empty storefronts in New York, and I feel like I think the billion dollar an inch pricing is maybe starting to budge a little bit. So I, I, I know what you mean, but I don't think the dream of the, the pillows and candle shop is is totally dead. I think it depends on where you are and like how your business works. What about you, Sean? Do you feel like the 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 shop is still a viable thing, or not so much, or I mean I I, I want to say yes the
0: trade off for me is that it's the like the amount of money that has to be invested into having the inventory making it look cute keeping it fresh so people feel like oh I have to keep going into that store because something new is in there or something interesting is there feel like that's a big barrier for a lot of people to imagine of they're like wait I could dump you know, I could easily, you could easily drop a hundred grand into a shop, like no problem. You could drop all that money in and still feel like I haven't, I'm not going to see the return on that for a while. And I think maybe the, the, we don't, a lot of people don't have the stomach for that. I know that I think right now I wouldn't have the stomach to imagine that, but once you start moving in volumes like that, it starts to make sense because you're already doing that. Like for some of the designers that I know, if we're talking about, the Amber Lewis's of the world, or we're talking about like Kate Lester is local to me. And, you know, they have found that sweet spot of they're putting shops in those sort of affluent communities where people will drive to those stores if they're not living in that shop because they have the household income, but they're also willing to hold it and they can handle the, you know, they're not getting ulcers from holding the inventory because they they know they're working on big enough projects to cover it. And I can't imagine that they would be going through the expansions they're going through without knowing that it's going to pay off for them. I think you just have to hit that critical mass. They're also
1: excellent marketers. Like you can't just open your cute little corner shop and put your sign up and
2: and hope, hope everyone, everyone shows counts. up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, like, yeah. I mean, Amber Lewis in particular, like, she was really good on Instagram, and you know what I mean. Like, the, you know, it, it. You have to. Yeah, I think that's a good observation. I got a hot take for you guys. So yeah. the, the, the new cute shop with pillows and candles is like a an Airbnb or like a vacation rental property that you like constantly redo as like a little workshop for your design business. What do you think? I
1: have this whole concept around this. There we <laughs> go. I had a name for it and it was like a shoppable home
2: that yep, you'd have like exactly. a little
1: pop up. You'd have, I mean, it would be everything from the furniture to the wall covering to little Jewelry in the bathroom, trinkets, ro- robes in the closet. I think it's, I think it's a really good idea, but I lost steam on it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Let's just do things the way we've always. Let's let's we'll, we'll send some faxes back and forth. But yeah, like one.
1: immersive yeah. and like amount. Like I think helpful to see people for people to see how things can actually be used versus beautifully
2: styled in just a store. Mm-hmm. It's like a store where people pay you the rent to stay there yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, Think, yeah, yeah. You know. and it's also like because i you know travel is back and hospitality is kind of booming in a way like where the residential was a couple years ago i feel like i don't know i feel it's also like it just like you have a popular instagram following so people know about it so you can market it to them i feel like it's like a happy happy little flywheel if you can get it going
1: you would just have to like merge it with that amazon like T- touchless exit where anything that crosses the threshold is oh, yeah. charged your That'd credit card. That'd be amazing. Oh gosh, yeah,
2: yeah, I'd love that. Yeah.
1: The loss prevention. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I think I just figured it all out.
2: It could sort of <laughs> monitor how investor. much soap you use, it could monitor the <laughs> candle going down inch by inch and charge it you, you, tw- you had 20 so. yes. pumps of dish soap while you were here, so now you have to pay <laughs> Yeah, for that. Exactly. Like,
1: everything's yeah. weighted.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds fun. Can't wait I to know. stay there, Rebecca. Yeah it's gonna be great. you're gonna love it yeah.
1: well, so any new updates on AI that we should know about? I feel like we did an episode on it, and it was already yeah. it already feels like a hundred years old.
2: I know it's tough. It's like I should have checked the latest developments right before I hopped on. I mean, it's moving super fast. People are trying to productize it as fast as they can. Like, there will be pretty good, AI interior design products like by the end of the year and next year as well I think at the end of the day like you guys don't have to worry about it that much because like if you provide like a full good service then you know you're like AI is gonna it's gonna be a long time before it can do that but I do think like e-designers are definitely in trouble and and,
1: they've been seen on TikTok this week so Photoshop just dropped a new beta version yeah yeah. and oh my god all these product photographers are just (sighs) freaking out because it's so good
2: yeah. Yeah. Even just wearing yeah, I, portrait I,
0: photographers, like for now, na- maybe for like a couple portrait, years yeah. before someone can come in and undercut the editing side of it or the after.
1: The retouching game's over. Like, there's no work. Yeah. Like, you're not going to be
0: retouching. able to charge crazy amounts once the consumer has figured out that they're like, well, just give me your raw images. I'll do it myself now. Um, because they're already used to editing images with. You know, Snapseed and other quick apps on their phone. And now you've just added this other tool to it where most people are like, well, why would I keep paying for professional photography if they're at that level? But my hope is that. The photographer
1: might still have a role, but it's just going to be very limited.
0: Yeah. Or the upcharge on editing is going to start to feel like most people are going to say, hold on, I'm not going to pay you, you know, this amount to edit my images when. You know,
1: it's a click of a button.
0: It's a couple like, clicks, yeah. Or the presets are so easy. We know you're not spending a lot of time and energy on that anymore. But
1: like, there, the new Photoshop stuff is like, I saw this one guy who had this. He was a wedding photographer, and it was a church wedding with like this huge stained glass, gigantic, multi faceted window behind the couple. But there was a big screen like cutting half of the window, and so he showed his retouch that he had done, and you know, spent hours and probably days on. And then he did a quick like, select, generate,
2: yeah. yeah, and he
1: showed it in real time, and it was better than his, and oh. it took like seconds.
2: Yeah, let me I'm, just one, and I like uh, an idea around this that I sometimes think about is the idea that like, you know. Were people saying this when smartphones got really good cameras, like, oh, photographers get, like are over because look at what good photos you can take with your phone. Like... On some level, will like what an AI edited photo look like just become sort of commoditized and our eyes will get so used to it and it'll be like, whatever, that'll require like a human to come up with some new look or some new weird twist that we all gravitate towards. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's like, that's my hope for humanity, but I'm not sure. I feel totally convinced. I by mean, that. it's
1: already kind of started like in photography, like film editor or film photographers are becoming a new thing because it's old. Yeah. Well, it's <laughs> so like there's craft to it.
2: It's like you can make something look really good, but it just becomes like a generic look because everyone can do it, so it becomes just the thing that you see all day. And so to mm-hmm. stand out, you have to have the human to come up with some new twist, whether it's using film or editing in some crazy way. I mean, look, I don't, I really don't know, but this is just sort of my like slightly optimistic take on maybe not all creative people will be out of a job in three years. I don't know. They
1: won't. I mean, we're yeah. creative. So yeah. yeah, and I think also there hopefully will be more of a backlash to, for the hand handcraftedness so like people who do hand renderings or hand drawings you can see that work like i don't i don't know that ai can do that i mean they yeah, can knock it but off it can, weird, but it can but yeah,
2: yeah yeah no i know but i think like designer look does it like at the end of the day like i think you know you guys i'm not telling you anything you don't know but the rendering like helps sell your work but like what the job is is just making it easy for the homeowner making it a pleasurable experience and making it actually come to life and like you know the the pretty picture is only a very 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 tiny part of it so i wouldn't wouldn't worry too much if you're like a good full service designer
1: yeah i saw a meme the other day that said ai is only going to take AI will never take over a designer's job because that would mean the client would know what they wanted.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. They have exactly. to put that into yeah. the input. Yeah, no, I know.
1: Which is yeah. actually, like, totally true.
2: It's totally true. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, like, it may, Im- like, the client who already thinks, like, they're a designer because they have a good Pinterest, it may empower them to think they're even better. But, like, yeah, for for real, I don't are not
1: a good client yeah. anyway. Yeah,
2: Yeah, that's true. Well then once
0: yeah. we let them start getting started on their projects then they'll realize it's so much worse than
1: <laughs> so much worse
0: than expected if you don't know what you're getting into or I've had some of those enthusiast clients do virtual consults with me and they were like oh my god I totally messed this up this is I just had someone this week who was like this is the third tub we've bought for the house and I was like okay well I hate to tell you but this tub also isn't going to work for your install method like a quick call with a plumbing rep would have helped you avoid this problem but you were just like i can figure this out and you know they couldn't and it kept going wrong and their contractor has taken out three you know three tubs now after halfway installing them and they're like they're just going at it again and i'm like we are spinning our wheels you could have brought me in after the first long run but you know but i'm that's fine i'll pay the consult fee and just point you at the direction yeah. But it you know not it's not as easy as it looks and there is so much expertise that goes into it. Sometimes you don't know until you do it. And I think that happens with also us as designers. You're like, "It can't be that hard." And then you realize, <laughs> "Oh, never mind. It is that hard." I I think my my upholstery shop just made it seem so easy or, you know, my cabinet guy just makes it sound like it's not that hard to do all this work, but I've figured out now no. that it really is.
2: mistakes in this world are so expensive and that's, Mm -hmm. you know, I keep, I keep cycling back to that point, but that makes it like, you know, are you really going to take a risk on an $80,000 thing? You know what I mean? Like, you know, that's, that's, it's a tough ask. Yes. Yes, Yes, I am. (laughs) (laughs) Not
1: (sighs) going to. Well, I am really, i I think everyone, if you haven't been listening to Business of Home, start with the Thursday show.
2: Thank you. That's, that's nice to hear. Because
1: if you just want, even like we were talking about in the beginning, like it gives you that little like cocktail party tidbit, like that's relevant to our business and our clients. But I don't know. I think it's also like educating people. All, you know, all people need to kind of know what's going on because we all have homes.
2: Literally all people should listen to it is what I think my my okay, yeah. my <laughs> takeaway is. But yes. I, I mean, well, it helps yeah.
1: them know why we're expensive and why our products are expensive. Like all of it.
2: Yeah, for sure. Thank you guys so much for having me. I love the show. I love how like real you guys are. There's a, There's a lot of design podcasts out there. Now I feel like I'm not going to name names, but, but you know, there's like this, there's a tendency in this industry just to like pretend that everything's great and it's a luxury experience and nothing ever goes wrong or whatever. And I just, I really appreciate how, how real and honest and open you guys are. And I think it's, it's, that's why it's a, it's a great listen.
1: Thank you for listening. That was really a nice surprise to hear that (laughs) you do listen. Cause yeah, we want this to just feel like a safe place because it's hard. It's hard doing what we do.
2: Yeah, for sure. I also want to be on the podcast because I've just crossed yeah. over the forty threshold, and anything I can, when I can be near the words "hot" and "young" <laughs> and "club," even yeah, you know, yeah. Just that's where I want to be. Get, <laughs> just get it for on it. the Google Analytics a little
0: bit so they show up together, and then yeah, <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> it might yeah. get flagged in the office though if you ever
2: have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you guys want to talk about anything else, or you want to you want to call it a call it a podcast?
0: We can. Call
2: it a podcast. Do you want to
0: tell any listeners where you'd prefer for them to follow along and keep up with the adventures?
2: Sure. Yeah. Well, obviously visit businessofhome.com. That's the site that I write for. You can get all kinds of like we we publish three to five articles every day about what's going on in the design industry. We have a daily newsletter that goes out. You can sign up on businessofhome.com. And as Rebecca was just saying, we have podcasts as well. Just look for the business of home podcast, wherever you get your pods and the Thursday show that we've been talking about comes out every Thursday. It's a little confusing because you, you you subscribe to the Business of Home podcast and then you get that, which is an interview on Monday, and then the news show on Thursday. But you get everything, everything you need from that from that one feed. Exactly. So that's it.
0: Awesome thank you so much fred for being with us we really appreciate it it's a lot of fun we
2: know we're going to be in each other's you dms so thank you <laughs> <laughs> love it love a good dm i'm gonna i'm gonna get all the names of those top dogs rebecca that okay. you want to tell me about oh okay. no, not a problem okay. she's, got a
0: she's got a she's got a <laughs> short list already created that she's watching no. so we're on <laughs> it oh, awesome. thank you well, until thank next you time
1: stay hot designers Thanks for listening to the Hot Young Designers Club podcast.
0: For more on what we talked about today, check out the show notes.
1: Your support helps us grow, so share with your design besties.
0: And subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.
1: Our conversations continue on Instagram.
0: And be sure to download our monthly resources on our website and our Patreon.